Well, good morning. I'd ask that you would take God's Word into your hand and open the Bible to Ruth chapter 3. Now, we are in the next couple weeks going to be closing out our series that we've entitled Redeeming Ruth. We've been in it all summer long, and uh, knowing that we've been out of the book of Ruth for the last three weeks, I want to uh, do a sort of review to get us all back up to where we need to be in this biblical narrative about Ruth and how she is redeemed and learn, as, as we have been, how that applies to our own lives. If you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to get a sermon CD. We had a guest speaker named Ray Pritchard, and anyone who is here would know that he was an incredible Bible teacher and uh, shared just great words of affirmation and great words of encouragement about our job to be persistent in times of prayer. So if you've been struggling with a particular prayer request or struggling with a particular uh, concern or worry, he gives a wonderful word from the Lord that speaks about never giving up when we pray. So make sure you go to the back and pick up one of the CDs, and while you're picking up Ray, Go ahead and pick up a couple of my old CDs as well. They're free of charge, so you can't get mad about the price. But as we turn to Ruth chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Ruth chapter 3, we are told of a story about this woman named Ruth. But the story name of Elimelech, who lived in Bethlehem. And Elimelech had a wife named Naomi and two sons, Malon and Kilion. Well, there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem. So uh, Elimelech says, all right, family, we're going to take off. And he chooses a place called Moab. Now, from all the surface, that seems to be a pretty good idea. But the problem with that kind of idea is that Moab was a place that was filled with sexual immorality and idol worship. And so he heads there, and and the text tells us that he was heading there for a short sojourn, a short uh, time frame that he would be in the land of Moab. But that short time frame turns into ten years. And those ten years that Elimelech and his family are in Moab are a time uh, that aren't very good for them. We know that within that ten years, Elimelech dies. We're not sure why he dies, but he dies nonetheless. And during that ten years, his two sons, Malon and Kilion, marry two Moabite women. One's name was Orpah and the other name was Ruth. And then during that ten years, after some time after those two boys get married, both Malon and Kilion both die as well. You would know that they would die because their names meant sickly and dying in the Hebrew. So we know that they didn't have a very good chance from the get-go, and they pass away in Moab. So that leaves Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth to try to make their way in Moab on their own. In verse 6 of chapter 1, it tells us that Naomi hears that God has come to the aid of his people in Bethlehem. And a decision that would be seen as wise for centuries would be the decision to say, I'm taking off from Moab and I'm heading back to Bethlehem. So she begins to bring her things together and begins to take off. And the two young daughter-in-laws say, we're going to go with you. Naomi says, I don't want you uh, to go with me. You need to go back to your homes, go back to your gods, and stay in the land of Moab. God has dealt very severely with me, and it's time for you to go back and try to make a new life in your family's home. Well, Orpah says, all right, that sounds like a pretty good idea. She hugs Naomi and she says, I'm heading back to Moab. But the text tells us that Ruth clung to Naomi and she articulates a wonderful word of faithfulness. She says, your God will be my God, Naomi. Your people will be my people, Naomi. And even death 
will not separate us from one another. So Naomi says, all right, this young girl doesn't want to leave my side. So they head off for about the 60-mile journey to the land of Bethlehem. They get into Bethlehem, and we learn a little bit about Naomi's personality. She's a pessimist at best. She comes in, and they say, is this Naomi, the town people of Bethlehem say? She says, don't call me Naomi. You shall now call me Mara, for I am bitter. She is a bitter old woman. And as a result of that, she begins to articulate that she left Bethlehem full. She had a husband, two sons, and she had all that she could ever ask for. But now she comes back empty. And she says, because of that, because of the way the Lord has dealt with me, I am bitter. Well, she comes back to Bethlehem, and as she said, she comes back empty-handed. There's no food. There's no real place to live. The text gives us a picture of total poverty. So Ruth, out of a, a, a sense of urgency, of needing sustenance and food, goes out to glean in a nearby field. The practice of gleaning would have been the ancient food pantry, if you will, where landowners were called to allow widows, orphans, and foreigners in distress to be able to take from the field to feed themselves. Well, Ruth goes out one day, and she finds herself in a nearby field that is owned by a man whose name is Boaz. Now, she doesn't know this man, but we know from Ruth chapter 2 that Boaz is a man of great valor. He's a man of wonderful vitality, a man of character. And some months ago, we, we talked about Boaz and how our men need to be men like Boaz. Well, as they begin to interact together on that fateful day, it becomes apparent that God is working together to bring these two people together. Boaz shows up at the field, and Ruth and Boaz meet for the first time. And scholars believe that it was love at first sight. And they begin to interact with one another. And they begin to talk with one another. They have dinner together. And on her way back home, she's given a portion of food and a portion of grain to take care of them and sustain them in their hour of need. Well, for a month and a half during the harvest season, uh, Ruth continues to go and glean. And she is productive in her gleaning. Well, one day when she comes home, Naomi says, I've got an idea. You know that man Boaz, where you've been gleaning, he is a relative of ours. And in my custom, there is a law called the Leverite Law. And what that means is, is if you are left as a widow, your nearest relative has the obligation and the responsibility to marry you and give you a child. And she says, that is our hope. Now I want you to get all dialed up, and I want you to head down to the threshing floor where Boaz is at tonight, and I want you to go and propose marriage to him. And that's what she does. As Ruth chapter 3 opens up, we see Ruth heading down to the threshing floor, finding Boaz, and articulating a proposal of marriage. That's where we're at in our text today, because we're going to see Boaz's response. But why did Ruth go through all this? Why did Ruth do this? Ruth was seeking something greater. She had nothing. She was a foreigner, a widow, a stranger. She had nothing in her future that she could look forward to. Now, there are many people in our world today who find themselves in Ruth's position today. You thought that, you know, you would get married and you'd have a house and some kids and everything would work out just fine and maybe none of that has happened. Or all of those things that you hoped for have brought nothing but despair and a lack of hope and, and a lack of fruitfulness in your life. And you find yourself seeking for those things. You know, our world seeks 
after those things. Our world pursues something greater. Our world pursues uh, something that is more. They want a future that is bright. They want a future that is going to be productive. And so they search after the things of this world. In fact, as I was thinking about this idea of seeking for something better and something greater, an old song when I was growing up in the 1980s came to mind, and, and I, we're not of the practice of playing secular music within the sanctuary, but I believe that this is a, an appropriate time to listen to the words of an artist named Steve Winwood. Some of you may remember it, and he speaks about that something greater, that something more being called a higher love. So listen as we play it. We'll have the words on the screen, and uh, we'll talk about what he has to say about where he finds that higher love in a moment. sing that song to Amanda when we were dating. Just kidding. 
What is Steve Winwood saying? He is crying out, asking the same thing that I believe our world, that millions of people, even today, are yearning for. They are seeking for something. He calls it a higher love. He says there is something that is so great and so awesome that I'm going to pursue it with all my heart. But like I said, the world seeks it in a lot of different ways. We find the world seeking it in, in the things of uh, uh, pleasure. People seek out uh, the pleasures of this world to find that higher love. We see them trying to find it in the bottom of a bottle or in the bottom of a, uh, a, a bottle of pills or drugs or, uh, or narcotics. We seek out the higher love and things like that. Some try to find it in the possessions of this world. If I buy that house, if I buy that car or that summer place or, or whatever it may be, that will bring me to that higher place that I've been seeking after. Still others, and it's far more subtle, put their hope and their faith that the person sitting next to them, the one that they married so many years ago, would be the hope that they would have that some higher love would be found. But I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, that the only place that we can find that higher love, the only place where we can find contentment and joy is not in the things of this world. And if you're seeking after them, I am sorry to say this morning that you are seeking in vain because those things will bring you nothing but pain and suffering in the end. But the only place where Steve Winwood will find what he's looking for because another song says that he's looking for love in all the wrong places. The only place where Steve Winwood will find it is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we seek after Jesus Christ, it is there that we begin to take off, pursuing that higher love. But how do we do it? I believe that Ruth was seeking for a higher love, if you will, this morning. She wanted something better, something greater. And we're going to see that in our text today. So turn to Ruth chapter 3, if you haven't already. And we're going to, I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read God's Word this morning. Ruth chapter 3, and I want to start in verse 7 to give us some context. Now, uh, work with me as it's a long passage. It says, When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirit, he went down to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly. She uncovered his feet and laid down. Now, at the middle of the night, something startled the man. And Boaz turned and discovered Ruth was lying at his feet. He says, Who are you? I am your servant Ruth, she said. Now spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, Boaz says, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. So stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So lie here until morning. So she laid at his feet until morning but got up before anyone could be recognized. And Boaz said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz also said, Bring me your shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. And when Ruth did so, Boaz poured into six measures of barley into it and put it on her. Then he went back to town. 
Verse 16 tells us, When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked her, How did it go, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything Boaz had done for Ruth and added, He gave me six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for Boaz will not rest until the matter is settled today. Chapter 4 says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer that he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to accept you, for I am next in line. The man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said in verse 5, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. I cannot do it. Now it says parenthetically, the author adds, Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption or the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So verse 8 says, So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are the witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Let's pray. Father God, we have read your word this morning. And Father, I pray from this incredible, true life story that we would be able to apply great truths this morning to our own lives. Father, I pray for the one that is out there today who is seeking for something better, who is seeking for something greater. And from the example of Ruth, that they would see first and foremost that you must be central in our life for us to be anything greater or to pursue anything higher So, Lord, I pray that you would open our minds today. We want to see you in our text this morning. And your word gives affirmation that you are a God that loves us and a God that redeems us. And we rejoice in that this morning. So, Father, I pray you would calm our hearts, that you would open our minds to understanding, so that we would be able to hear what your good and pleasing will is today. And all God's people said, 
Amen. You may be seated. We want to achieve a higher love. If we want something greater in this world, then first of all, it starts with a humble request. It starts with a humble request. Now our text tells us that when Ruth arrives at the threshing floor, she asks him in verse 9 of chapter 3 to spread his garment over her. Now this is an old uh, tradition back in Israel and even in the Arab nations that would give significance to a sign of proposal. What Ruth is asking for is, will you marry me? Now, I've been asked by the different people in the congregation, why is it, especially in ancient days, why is it that Ruth proposes marriage to Boaz? Weren't they even more, uh, um, what's the word, uh, more um, conservative back in the day that the men would do all the interacting with the women and the women just silently stayed quiet? They didn't have much to say? Why is Ruth asking? The reason why Ruth asked Boaz to marry is seen very clearly in this. Ruth is a widow. And in that custom, widows had an unmarked amount of time for grieving. One widow might grieve for 40 days. Another woman might grieve for 40 years. It all was dependent on the widow who was grieving. Now, Boaz would not dishonor the dead, her dead husband, or dishonor her grieving period to go and ask for her hand in marriage. So what Ruth is saying is, is Boaz, I'm back on the market, and I am ready to be married. That's what she's saying. Boaz doesn't ask because Boaz wants to be very careful not to dishonor her in her season of grieving. So what does he do? Like a good man? Even though he wants to marry her, what does he do? He ministers to her. He takes care of her. He gives her the provisions that she needs. He protects her like a man ought to with one that he loves. And that's what Boaz does. But we see that this request involves a couple things. For this request to be valid, first of all, Ruth had to ask. Ruth had to ask. Scholars believe that if Ruth doesn't take that first step, of asking Boaz for marriage that Boaz may never have asked ever. Why? Because Boaz would have thought that this woman is continually grieving and that she is continuing to grieve the loss of her husband and she's not ready to be remarried again and that she would rather remain a widow. So the union would then never take place. But it's important to understand that by Ruth asking Boaz to be married A couple things are articulated by Ruth to Boaz. The first thing that Ruth articulates to Boaz is that she's done with her former life. She's done with her former life. Write that somewhere in your outline because this is of great importance. When Ruth says, Boaz, spread your covering or your garment over me, what she's saying is, is first of all, I am done being a Moabitess. What it means is I am now entering into a home that will no longer pursue the things that the people of Moab pursued. Now, we saw a foreshadowing of that when Ruth tells Naomi on the way to Bethlehem that your God will be my God, your people will be my people. But now she enters into a covenant relationship with Boaz and says, I'll never be that way again. The second thing that happens from her past is she says, I am no longer a widow. I'm no longer a widow. 
which he says by going to Boaz and saying, hey, I, I would like you to marry me, is saying, I'm done grieving and living in the past with my uh, husband who's now dead. And I'm ready to move on to something else, something different. The third thing we see is that in, in her asking about her uh, uh, bringing about this marriage proposal from her past is that she's saying now that I am no longer going to be known as a foreigner, but I now want to be known as one of your own. I want to be yours, Boaz. I want you to purchase me. That's the first thing. She, remo- she wants to move on from her past. The second thing we see is not only is she done with that, but then the second thing we see is, is that she is certain... That if she's done with her past, that she is certain that whatever she's desiring, whatever she wants, she can't accomplish it on her own. What she's saying is, is, all right, Boaz, by me asking you for your marriage protection and your marriage covenant over me, I want you to know something. One, I'm done living as Ruth the foreigner and as Ruth the widow, and I'm ready to move on to something else. But Boaz, in asking you, I'm saying I can't accomplish that on my own. What she's saying is, is I can't do it without your help. The third thing we see in her asking for marriage isn't just that she's done with her former way of life, and secondly, that she can't accomplish what she desires on her own. But the third thing we see is, is that what takes place is she says, I have watched you, Boaz, and I have learned that you are qualified, that you are a man of character, and that you are the one and only one who can take care of what concerns me most today and what will concern me most tomorrow. So she comes out and she says, All right, I know that I can't live in the past anymore. I know that I want something greater and something better. And as I look around to the people around me, you are the only one who can accomplish what I need accomplished in my life. What a pattern and what a parallel of Jesus Christ and the life of the sinner. You know, we have this idea in the evangelical world that all we have to do uh, to be saved is just go and walk down an aisle and say, you know, Jesus, hey, I need you. I heard this gut-wrenching message by the preacher and and I got some issues right now and and you're an option. You're an opportunity. You say that things will be better and I need things to be better right now. So Jesus, I want you to come into my life, but I will assure you of something. If you want to be a child of God and you are sitting today as an unbeliever, three things must be apparent in your salvation. Number one, you must be done with the former way of life that you lived. You must say, I'm done living like I did in the past. I'm done living as a widow, as a foreigner, as a stranger, as a person in poverty. I'm done living that way. The second thing you must do is not just stop living in the past, but now you must also go and say, there is no way I can accomplish what I desire most. If I desire for love and contentment and joy, the sinner must come to their place of decision where they say, I cannot do that on my own. And then we, our eyes must turn to Jesus. And Jesus can't become an option. Jesus can't just become a shortcut. But Jesus can only be the one and only one who can save us from our troubles. He's the one and only one who can give us what our whole desire is our longing for the contentment and the joy and the peace that this world seeks after. 
So if we desire for true relationship with Jesus Christ, it means saying, I'm done with the way I used to live. Secondly, it means that I can't accomplish it on my own, that by trying to do it on my own, I will be a failure. And thirdly, that Jesus is our one and only answer to that. That's true salvation. That is a true conversion. We see that's what takes place in the life of Ruth when it comes to her relationship with Boaz. But you know what? Ruth could have asked a million times. She could have said, you know, Boaz, will you marry me? And he'd say, you know, I don't know. Let me think about it. And she'd come back and say, Boaz, would you marry me? And she'd say, you know what? Now's not the right time. That's not what we see. Because for this request to be valid, we see another step has to be made. Ruth has to ask, but Boaz had to answer. Boaz had to answer. Now we see something very important. What has Boaz been doing up to this point? Boaz has been drawing Ruth to himself. He's noticed her. He's watched out for her. He's provided for her. He's cared for her. He has shown her an amazing amount of love and grace. Even though she's a foreigner, she has been shown the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and Boaz has taken care of her from one step to another. What a picture of God as he draws us to himself, as he shows us incredible love and mercy. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Ruth was still a foreigner, Boaz showed her kindness. And we see this happening. But you know what? Ruth still had to ask. Ruth still had to come to a place in her life where she says, you know, I need you, Boaz. I need you in my life. And Boaz answers. He answers very quickly, just as our Savior in heaven answers very quickly. When we call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says we shall be saved. The Bible doesn't say, well, he'll think about it. The Bible doesn't say, well, he'll get back to you because the Trinity has their salvation meetings once every other month. And when he finds out what's going on, he'll get back to you and send you an email about it. It says you will be saved. And if you come to Christ and you turn from your sin and you say to Christ, I can't accomplish what you desire for me on my own. And Jesus, you are the only one who can. Then you will be saved. You will be saved. Boaz answers. But how does he answer? He answers the same way Christ answers for you and I. First of all, we see his answer involves, first of all, promise. He gives promises. Look at what the text tells us as he gives these promises. He articulates, first of all, in verse 11. Look at our text in verse 11. After Ruth has asked for marriage, Boaz says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you. What is that word there? Help me out. Okay, I got three people. Let's do it again. What's that word? All. A-L-L. In the Greek, it literally means all. In the Hebrew, it means all. Everything. I will do everything that needs to be accomplished. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 13. He says, stay here for the night, and in the morning, if this other guy wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But Ruth, if he's not willing, don't worry about it. Ruth, if he says no... It's okay. Why? Because he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. As surely as the Lord lives. 
Do you know what Boaz is saying there? He is articulating the greatest and most solemn of all oaths that any Hebrew would ever give. What he's saying is, is based upon the existence of God in heaven, as surely as he lives, which he does, I will meet your needs. He says, I'm going to take care of it. Look at what verse 13 gives us. It gives us a picture of a wonderful and true promise. But look at what happens next. He doesn't just give a promise with his words, but he also gives a provision. Once he's given a verbal promise, Boaz gives yet another gift to Ruth. Look at what it says in verse 14 through 17. So Ruth laid at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Why does he say this? Just very quickly, he says this because he does not want Ruth to be seen in an appearance of evil. Nothing's happened. Remember, he articulates to Ruth that she is a woman known for her noble character. All she's done is come and propose marriage. But he knows that people talk. He knows that people gossip. And he knows that there's a good possibility that this woman will be his wife. And he don't want anybody talking bad about his future wife. So what does he do? He says, hey, you're, you're fine. You're full of character. I don't want anybody to bring up an accusation against you. So you know what? Take off. Now, why didn't he ever take off in the middle of the night? It wouldn't be very smart for a young woman like Ruth, all dialed up to be walking around in the wilderness of Bethlehem. So he protects her, says, stay here till night, until morning comes. But right before it gets too light that everybody can see you, you take off and head home so no one can speak badly of you. But look at what he says in verse 15. Boaz also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went to town. Now it says later in verse 16, Naomi sees Ruth come home. How did it go? Tell me about this great first date. You know, was he nice? What did he say? She tells him everything that happens. And look at verse 17. And he gave me the six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother empty-handed. Boaz puts a deposit guaranteeing the promise that he's given. He says, all right, Ruth, I'm not just going to tell you that I'm going to take care of things, but I'm going to meet your need now. Now, it says six measures of barley. Scholars debate on what that means. One scholar I saw said that it could have meant as much as 200 pounds. Other scholars say that it was about 88 pounds of barley. Still others say 40. We learn a couple things from this. Number one, Ruth must have been an Amazon. Power lifter. Okay? Now the text tells us that Boaz helps put this on Ruth. Could you see that for a moment? 98 pound Ruth up there. And here comes Boaz, big strong Boaz, throwing 200 pounds of barley on this woman. And she walks home. Oh, oh, oh. I mean, she was a power lifter. But she goes home. And what we learn is not that Ruth was an Amazon or a power lifter. But what we learn is we know this for sure. Scholars are clear. And that is that Boaz gives her more than he's ever given her before. You know, I don't know about you, but the longer I am in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the blessings don't start at the top and work their way down. But it seems in my life that the blessings keep getting better and better and better the closer and closer I get to Jesus Christ. 
Every time Ruth got closer to Boaz, the blessings got better. The ministry by this great Redeemer only continued to get better. So she heads home. We don't know how much it is, but it's a lot. Whatever it may have been, she carries this home. But look at what it says. I've articulated this before, but I want us to remember it. Look at what is done with this blessing. Why does Boaz give it to her? Does Boaz say, Ruth, because you need it? No. Does he say, Ruth, so you'll have food for the fall? No. What does he say? He says, take this, six measures of barley, take it to your mother-in-law so you don't go empty-handed to her. Why did Boaz do it? Boaz wanted not only to be a blessing to Ruth, but he also wanted to be a blessing to those around Ruth. So what happens? Remember, uh, uh, Naomi comes back to Bethlehem and says, I am empty. I come home empty. I'm bitter. And Boaz says, you know, I don't want to just minister to you, Ruth. I want to minister to your bitter mother-in-law. And so what happens? A ble- she is blessed to therefore to be a blessing. Now, twice in a short amount of time, Ruth has come home after being with her future Redeemer. And what happens? She is blessed. She's given something and she gives it to Naomi. Let me tell you something very quickly, Village Bible Church. When God blesses us, we ought to be blessing other people. When God blesses us, whether it's with material possessions, whether it's with spiritual joy or the spiritual fruit or whether it's with giftedness, our job is not to hold that blessing for ourselves and say, wow, isn't God great? Wow, doesn't God give wonderful blessings? But it is to release it to the people around us. That's why God calls us to give to a local church. Why? It isn't because God needs our money. God says, I've blessed you with the things of material possessions in this world. I'm not asking you to take it all away and never to have it. But what he's saying is, be a blessing. And some of us as Christians need to be blessings with the wonderful houses that God's given us. Some of us need to be a blessing with the financial prosperity God has given us and to bless those around us. We as a church have wonderful resources, whether it's this building or whether it's the people here. And we need to be a blessing to the world around us. God has called us to be blessed to be a blessing. And that's what Ruth does. She goes home and takes it to someone who is discouraged, someone who is hurting, and gives it to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now look at what it says next. Not only do we see... um, My first P is a promise, the second one a provision. But we see the final answer is seen in Boaz's persistence. His persistence. Look at verse 18. Then Naomi says, this is when Ruth is back at Naomi's house, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. She comes home and she says, All right, this is what happens. Boaz is going to go talk to this dude who's closer in relations to us. So, i got to wait. Naomi says, wait. But understand this, uh, Ruth, Naomi says, Boaz will not rest until the matter is settled. You know, in the Hebrew, it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of a singular focus. What uh, Naomi is telling Ruth is that, hey, Boaz isn't going to eat. He's not going to sleep. He's not going to go and head out to work. He's not going to do anything until this issue is resolved. And what do we see in chapter 1 of verse 4? Chapter 4, verse 1. What does he say? It says that right away he heads to town at night to meet with the kinsman redeemer. He will not rest. 
He will not settle until the issue has been done. What an incredible, yet another incredible parallel of our great Savior Jesus Christ with this man, Boaz. Because we have a, a, a Savior, a Redeemer, who comes and He says, Yes, I will redeem you. But it doesn't end there. The Bible tells us, in fact, Paul tells the church at Philippi that Jesus Christ is persistent. He is faithful. He who began a good work in you isn't going to give up on you. He who began a good work in you isn't going to go and go see what's going on on the other side of the galaxy and maybe get back to you. He who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to the day of completion. I want you to understand something. The moment that you trust Christ as your Savior and are justified, meaning everything, every sin that was held against you is now taken away and imputed on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When that happened, Jesus Christ saved you. But I will articulate something else we don't think about. Each and every day, Jesus is saving us. Why? Because He continues to move us and sanctify us from being the way we used to be to the way that we will be when we are glorified. That process of sanctification is an ongoing salvation in our life. What that does not mean, please hear me very clearly this morning, is not that you're being progressively saved. You are saved the moment you place your trust in Jesus Christ. But that saving isn't just an instantaneous justification. That's part of it. But it is an ongoing sanctification to the moment where you and I see Jesus Christ and are glorified when we will become like Him. And Jesus says, I will not rest. I will not settle. I will not do anything until that is accomplished. We see that not only in His own life, that He suffered and died for us and was persistent and obedient to the cross to attain our justification, but He sends the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in the book of Romans, to intercede on our behalf that we might continually be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is what Jesus Christ is doing right now. He is persistent. The Bible says that the devil comes and he is an accuser of the brethren. And Jesus Christ says when there is accusation brought against him in, in the heavenly courtroom, Jesus Christ said it was paid on the cross of Calvary. And I'm going to continue to change him to become like myself. And not just for me, but all that call upon the name of the Lord. He's persistent. We see something else, and that is that this higher love doesn't just begin with a request, but secondly, it involves a set of requirements. At the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4, we are given yet another piece of information. It tells us there is someone else who is closer in relations with Naomi and Ruth, even closer than that of Boaz. Look at what it tells us in verse 13 and 14 of, uh, uh, let's see here, of uh, chapter 3. It says, stay here for the night, in verse 13, and in the morning, if this other guy wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. Now, Boaz makes it clear that there's a possibility that he won't marry Ruth. That there's someone else that's first in line. And Boaz says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go find this kinsman redeemer. And then chapter 4 opens up with the whole scenery changing. We go from the threshing floor to the city gate of Bethlehem. 
And he goes to the city gate, and he's walking around looking, and it says he finds the kinsman redeemer, this other relation that is closer. Now, the city gate was a place of great commerce. It was a place of gathering. It was a place of uh, where decisions were made. It was uh, also a uh, courtroom of sorts. And he comes again. He says, sit down. We need to spend some time talking. And him and this other kinsman redeemer begin to talk. And he begins to articulate what's going on in Naomi's life. Now, this is another picture of Boaz's care and concern. Because nowhere does the author ever say there's another guy around. All it says is that Boaz is the one. Naomi says, there's Boaz and he's our kinsman redeemer. Why is it that she doesn't know about this other guy? Doesn't she know Elimelech's brothers and cousins enough? Did she not interact with them at the family reunions that she would know that there's another guy? Let me tell you this. We don't know why she doesn't know or why it isn't articulated. But we know that Boaz is even working behind the scenes on account of Naomi and Ruth. Likewise, so our God in heaven works behind the scenes, even when we are aware or unaware of what may be going on. Boaz then goes to this kinsman redeemer and begins to articulate what's going on. Let's look at what it says. In verse 2 of chapter 4, after he gathers ten of the elders of the town, he says, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, this Naomi who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. What Boaz is giving is he's giving these ten elders and this kinsman redeemer the 411, that's information for the older folks, the information on Naomi. Now here's something we don't know about. It says that Elimelech's got property. Yet another uh, awakening of information comes. Nowhere in the text prior to this do we know that Ruth or Naomi have any kind of property. We're not sure whether Naomi didn't know about it, was unaware of it. All we know is that Boaz says, Hey, Elimelech, the dude that headed off to Moab some ten years ago, and now his widow and his daughter-in-law have come home, they've got property, and I want to buy it. But I have to wait... Because you're first in line. That's what he says. Now look at what it says in verse uh, 4 and 5. It says, verse 5, Then Boaz said, uh, On that day that you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow. I need to stop there because I missed a page in my notes. There's something important that happens. Here the guy articulates in verses 2 and 3 that there's land to be bought. The kinsman redeemer says, All right, I'll redeem it. Land? Sure. Land isn't easy to come by here in Bethlehem. Land will help raise my property value. Land will give me money. It will make me an individual of great resources. Boaz, thank you for sharing. I will take the land. But then Boaz says, by the way, and I'm going to translate for you, if you take the land, there's some more stuff that comes with it. Naomi, she goes with the land. Ruth, the Moabitess, the one that came from Moab, she goes with the land as well. And you are to place that land in the estate of the dead man. Now the man says, wait a minute. I thought it was all for me. Now you're saying, you said, first, there's a resource for me. Now, in verses 5 and 6, now there's a responsibility to this redemption. And he says, you know what? No. 
You know, I told you way back when there's debate on whether Elimelech was a bad dude or not for going to the land of Moab, and there's debate on whether that's true or not. There is no debate about this guy. This guy is selfish, and he is one bad dude. When we see this guy walking down the street, that's what we do. He is no good. Why? Because he's thinking about himself. Now you say, where do you see that? He uses the terminology, uh, is it verse 6? He uses it in verse 6, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it, Boaz. He says, I cannot do it. The Hebrew literally is even more forceful than that. It isn't, I cannot do it. But literally in the Hebrew it is, I will not do this. I will not buy that land. Now why does he say that? He says, because it might endanger my estate. That is a huge statement. Because what we see is, What he literally means in the Hebrew is it literally means that it will shrivel up who I am. It will take something away from me. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of that passage, it says in there, it is translated the Greek word diaphtherio, diaphtherio, which is where we get our English illness called diphtheria. That's what they're using. What it's saying is, is this is no good. Why is it no good? Because he's got other jobs or other goals and other plans and aspirations. And he says, you know what? If I got to take on a woman, then that means that I've got to take care of her. I got to feed her. I got to protect her. I have to watch over her. I have to love her. And after I do all that, that property that I got goes to the son that I give her according to this union. So it's about maintaining someone else's property. It's about taking care of something that they can't take care of on their own. And it has nothing to do with the one that's redeemed. It is all on the Redeemer. And he says, I don't want nothing to do with it. You know, there's two things that we see, and I need to get moving here in point number two. There's a set of requirements that take place. The first requirement that we see in our text is that he has to be a relation. This guy passes that. He is a closer relation than uh, Boaz is. But the second thing we see is that he had to be worthy. He had to be a man worthy. What that meant is he had to have the ability to take on this new uh, property and this new person and be able to absorb it into himself, if you will, without hurting anything around him. That would be like you coming to me and saying, Tim... We can't afford our mortgage payment anymore, and we need you and Amanda to uh, start making the mortgage payment for you. I'd love to do it, but I can't. I can't accomplish that. If I could, then I'd have two houses, and I don't have two houses. So I only can accomplish one thing because my resources don't allow me to help you in that way. So the person had to be worthy. We know Boaz was a man of great resources, a man of great wealth, the text tells us, and he's worthy to do it. But it's also a worthiness in the worthiness of being able to do it with the right heart. And that brings us to a willingness. There's a willingness. The man had to be willing. This man says, I don't want to do it because it's going to take away from my goals and my plans. And instead of doing that, I'll let Boaz take it. And Boaz is willing. There is a desire in Boaz's heart to say, I will take it and it will be mine. Now understand this. There are many things in this world as we pursue, if you will, by using that song, a higher love, as we pursue the best of the best, there are things in this world that serve just like that landowner. 
things of this world, all of them, all the things that our friends and our neighbors and, and the people of this world try to fulfill themselves with are just like that landowner. They promise good things, but in the end, they're selfish for their own things. Talk to anybody who's been uh, an alcoholic. Talk to anybody who's fallen into the sin of pornography. Talk to anybody about the sin of lying and cheating. It looks good at the beginning and it looks really promising, but what happens in the end? Those sins and that lifestyle is selfish for itself because you've got to feed it and you've got to take care of it and you've got to keep doing that. And what does it give you in the end? Nothing but heartache. And just like that man, that landowner, we find ourselves us thinking that someone's going to redeem us, that that bottle is going to redeem us, that the illicit relationship is going to redeem us, that the things of this world and the possessions are going to redeem us, but in the end, they're selfish and they're pursuing their own things, let alone the things for us. But what does Boaz do? What a wonderful compare and contrast. He says, you know what? When I redeem, it ain't about me. When I redeem, it ain't about what it's going to cost me. What it's about is about the one that needs redemption. And we serve a God who said it's not about me. Do you know, think about this for a moment. You brought nothing to the table in regards to your salvation. God didn't sit there and say, I better save Tim. Man, look at him, man. There's a lot of good things going for him. We could use him in the HR department up here. He's a really spectacular guy. No, you know what he saw? He saw a sinful, totally depraved individual who can give nothing back to God that he needs. And God says, it ain't about me. It's about him. It ain't about what I can receive, but it's about redeeming a people unto myself. And that's what Boaz does. He says, it's not about me. It's about Ruth and Naomi who are in need. Jesus saw us in need. And he said, it's not what the people of the world can bring me, but it's what I can bring to them. Third point this morning. The third and final thing that we see is that this is uh, seen. This idea of higher love is seen through its results. What would change in Ruth's life? What would happen to Ruth? She's going to be redeemed. Well, it involves three very quick things. First of all, it establishes a new start. Ruth goes from being a woman who has no future. A woman who knows that if Boaz is unable to redeem her, that it's going to be back and forth in the field, gleaning, hoping that she finds blessing each and every time that she goes, working her tail off just to be at the status quo. But Boaz says, yes, I will redeem. And what does that do for her? It establishes a new start. Look at what the text says in verse 11. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home. There's a wonderful start and beginning there. What it's saying is, is Ruth, what was ever in your past, you don't have to worry about that anymore. It's all about a bright and new future. Why? Because we see a second thing, and that is it it elevates the position of the saint. It elevates the position of the saint. Look at what the text says. Well, bless the woman that's coming into your home. What do you mean bless them? That she will be like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. 
Think about this great exchange that happens. Ruth goes from being a foreigner to being a widow to being a stranger in a strange land. And what happens? She goes from that to being likened and being blessed to being one of the greatest patriarch, or, I'm sorry, matriarchs of the Israelite nation. Be like Leah and Rachel. Everybody knows Leah and Rachel are, are, are a big part in the Israelites' history. And what they're saying to Ruth is, hey, let her be like one of the best of the best. Let her be a Hall of Famer like Rachel and Leah. You know, when we come to know Christ, not only are we given a new start, not only are we a new creation in Christ Jesus, but the Bible says that we go from being far off from God, we go from being God-haters and insolent, rebellious, running away from God, and God brings us in and He elevates us. What does He elevate us to? From being blind, dead, and held captive by the evil one to being a co-heir with Christ and a co-heir with God the Father. Can I tell you something? That is an amazing exchange of position. We go from being nothing except objects of God's wrath to being objects of God's mercy. And our position now isn't that God says, I'll just redeem you. Now go do whatever you want. He says, I redeem you. Now you're a part of the family of God. And that's what happens in Ruth's life. With Boaz. One final thing it does is it exalts our Savior. It exalts our Savior. The text tells us that the elders and the witnesses pray a special blessing upon Boaz. Look at what it says. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We'll get more into this next week. But what happens is, is they bless Boaz. They say, great is Boaz. You've shown grace and mercy. Let's speak highly of Boaz. Let's bless him. Let's honor him. Let's exalt who he is because Boaz is a great man. This woman had nothing and he has shown her grace and mercy and cared for her and protected her. And she had nothing to give Boaz. But he did it. And that's why Boaz is awesome. That's what they're saying. So we as children of God ought to exalt our Savior because of what He's done for us. We need to be showing the world around us that because we have found this higher love, because we have pursued something that is better, and because God has opened the floodgates of His blessing upon us, could you imagine Ruth for a moment? And stick with me for two minutes and I'm done. Could you imagine Ruth going and walking around and saying, I am good, I am great. I deserve everything, and it doesn't rhyme, but I deserve everything that goes in my life. Does she say that? No. As a humble woman, you know what I believe she was saying? Boaz is good. Boaz is great. I don't deserve nothing, and he gives me everything. You know, that's the tune you should be singing in your workplace. That's the tune you should be singing in your schools when they start this week. That should be your tune when you're walking around in your neighborhood. God is good. God is great. I deserve nothing, but He has shown me His unmerited favor upon me that I went from being nothing but scum, and God has raised me up so I can be an heir with Him. And all the blessings and all the great things that come with being a child of God now are given to me. And you know what that does? That doesn't make you anything. You're humiliating yourself and saying, but God is one awesome God. You know, that's what Sugar Grove needs to hear from the people of Village Bible Church. Not that we're good. Not that we're great. 
We're nothing if it were not for our Redeemer who is faithful and true. Let that be on our lips. Let that be articulated when people talk nicely about our building or about our growth in numbers. Let that be the claim to fame that we have. We're a bunch of nobodies, but we're awesome. Not because of who we are, but because God is awesome. And we are counted as His children. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You and we thank You. We thank You for this incredible picture of Boaz and Ruth. And Father, we know that You have read the curse of hell and You've redeemed us to be a people unto Yourself. So Father, we pray that it would not be an exaltation of who we are, but because of Your grace and Your mercy, we would become nothing, as John the Baptist said, that you can become all that you are and that that could be articulated and seen throughout all the world. Father, I pray that that would be the corporate testimony of us as a church, that people would see us and they would know that there's someone greater and someone better and someone more magnificent and more powerful that's taken us from death and brought us into life. So, Father, I pray that that would be on our tongues as we interact with our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. You have redeemed us and you have made us like your son, Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you. And now we sing and praise you and all God's people said, Amen.